Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Had a few awesome emails come through on the old news desk, so to speak, and I wanted to just uh, address them. So that's what we're going to do today. Two of them, actually, in particular, were very interesting, and I think they are pretty good topics. I'm not an expert. I'm going to say that little disclaimer right away, but... I do have quite a bit of experience, uh, good and bad, which I think is very valuable on both sides. So that's what we're going to sort of get into. But before we start the show, like I always say, if you want to support the podcast, become a member of the 40-member strong Patreon family, you can head over, follow the link Sorry to the Patreon group, and uh, you can help keep this show going, which... So many of you already are, and it's fantastic. It's super helping me out. It's making it, uh, you know, it's, I like doing this podcast. It's enjoyable. I love sitting down with people. And at the same time, it's, uh, you know, it is a lot of work. So I, I do appreciate the uh, little tip of the hat, so to speak. So that one's a big one. And then the other thing, obviously, is we've got five different shirts. I'm actually wearing one of the zip-up hoodies right now. And it's so soft and it's so nice. It's actually good quality. You never know when you do these internet things. And uh, obviously, it's the first time I've ever done merch. But I don't know. It's kind of cool. And uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it. So it is, it is pretty good quality. You can check those out. Follow the link to the bonfire stuff. Uh, I'll put that in the description as well. And then, obviously, you can reach out to the show at sailingintooblivion.com. And uh, click on the podcast link and just uh, click over on the old contact the show. And bam, that email goes directly to me. And uh, with that being said, I think that's pretty much it. Oh, I did want to mention in other news, I guess, that I have started doing. I received uh, a few other emails about one of the subjects I was talking about in the last podcast. And that was sort of doing these these shorter interviews with people via zoom you know not the best quality as far as the audio goes but i am you know you get the video so i think what i am going to do i mean they're they're already going up on youtube i just had a pretty cool conversation today with a triple crown through hiker and that essentially is someone who hikes the appalachian trail pacific crest trail and the continental divide trail um you could do it in a single calendar year, uh, this guy, Aton, he, he did it over multiple years, but I mean, still literally like I looked up the stats on this. We're talking about an elevation gain of over a million feet. We're talking about almost 8,000 miles walked. And I I think it's 22 States total. It's absolutely tremendous. I mean, I'd like to do the PCT, the CDT sort of scares me for sure, uh, but from what I've heard from people, they usually talk about that one as the best one. So I don't know. Only about 150 people even try to do it each year, and only half of them might make it. So crazy. But uh, in any event, let me let me hop out of the weeds real quick. So I've been doing these 
these little shorts. I've got three of them now. I'm hopefully going to be sitting down with Randall Reeves this week and a couple other people. So I don't know. It, it, it allows me to reach a sort of different uh, guest than, you know, anybody that's in my immediate vicinity. And I think that's pretty cool because I've got uh, some pretty neat connections out there that I've made throughout the years and some pretty pretty interesting people to, to really talk to. They're shorter in duration, you know, in the 20, 30 minute range. So it's a little crunched compared to doing the podcast, which is kind of interesting. I mean, when, when you sit down for a podcast where you have no limits, if the conversation is flowing, you just let it keep going and going and going. And there's no rush. There's no, there's no push to get the content going quickly and, and try and hit all your bases. You just got all the time in the world. But with these things, because it's on Zoom and all that, um, I don't know. I kind of feel like I'm trying to keep it a little bit kept, but maybe that's good as well. So in any event, they're they're getting pushed out on YouTube. And I think for the Patreon group, I'm just going to go ahead and start uploading those on the Patreon page uh, rather than sort of clip them in to the podcast. I don't know. I don't know if that's the greatest plan in the world. We'll see. But uh uh, it's a work in progress, and I, I still—I've only done three of them, so we've got to—we've uh, got to sort of build that, build that uh, library up, so to speak. But I had a great conversation the other night with Sven about the the weather balloon or the the Chinese spy balloon or whatever it was up in the sky, because Sven works in sort of that aerospace stratospheric flight sort of thing and uh, it was really interesting to get his take on it that one's up on youtube as well so might want to check that out but excuse me in any event that's sort of a new thing that's uh cropping up uh, in the content world and i don't know i will we'll see how it goes if people enjoy them then i'll keep doing them Uh, like i said i mean with the podcast as well it's just it's fun it's fun to sit down undistracted with another person and you know basically say yeah turn the cell phone off and it's just gonna be us so uh you know i keep going i'm just gonna keep on going uh it's cold out i did talk to murphy for all the murphy fans out there he survived the bitter cold i think it got down to about negative 30 or something in the boatyard the other night he uh told me that he put duct tape all over the shack doors, crammed his uh, <laughs> crammed his sweatshirts and stuff like that in all the cracks, and uh, he said the shack never got below sixty degrees, so he just wasn't basically he he couldn't open the big shed door uh, to to go outside. So you know he brought a bucket in for you know what, and uh, he was good, awesome, glad he survived. I. I thought to myself, I hope somebody's either going to take him in or, or what. He does have a couple of heaters in there, but I mean, when you're talking like negative 30s, that's, uh, that's really cold. You lose the power in that sort of situation, and you might be actually be in kind of trouble. So that being said, somehow Thomas Murphy is still alive and kicking, and I talked to him today. So that's my Murphy update. Now on to... The subjects, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tackle the first one. First question came from, uh, I don't know, better look it up. I don't want to screw this up. I love these questions too. They are great. The, the first one comes from Josh. And Josh was essentially asking about uh, space, space on a boat, how you 
can ever be able to fit all the things that you need on your boat to be able to venture off into the wild blue ocean in a safe and, uh, and prepared, I guess, manner. And one of the things that I used to always tell people is the only way you can have everything you need is if you tow the exact same boat with all the exact same stuff on right behind your boat. So there's no humanly way possible to have every single tool that you might need and everything you, you know, possibly could ever need on the boat. And I think in a lot of ways, rather than try and list all the crucial tools, I mean, I've always gotten away with a pretty basic set of tools. I mean, you got your tool bag with screwdrivers and, you know, chisels and a hammer and wrenches and Allen wrenches and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then you typically these days, everybody's got a, a nice little set of cordless power, power tools from uh, a sawzaw to, you know, drills and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, uh, as I am now just listing off things, um, it really is more important to be in the right frame of mind when it comes to this. I mean, you get your standard set of, of tools that you're going to be able to do quite a bit of maintenance and repair with, but really just realize that for centuries, sailors have been just being able, you know, able to put together and make do with what they have. And there's sort of... Um, I don't know. I don't know if there's sort of a pride in it or uh, I don't, it's kind of hard to describe, but I, it's one of those things where it shouldn't be shouldn't be worried that, oh, my gosh, I might be out there and, and not have the one perfect tool. It's more of a, a it, you know, know the feeling of I got these tools and I can pretty much do whatever I'm going to need to do with them, even if I don't have the perfect one. And sometimes, you know, you find yourself actually manufacturing uh, tools or manipulating them into whatever you need them to actually do. And I, I think when it comes to the tools, one of the big things is making sure that you've got sort of the proper stuff to be able to change the oil filters, uh, mostly do the engine work, change belts, uh, adjust things, you know, all that sort of stuff. When it comes to the actual rest of the boat, I mean, it's, it just, it, it's rare that I'm out there being like, oh, I wish I would have, you know, brought that one socket set or, or something like that. It's, it's, it's typically like, okay, well, we don't have exactly what I need for this. I'm trying to think of examples as I'm talking here, and it's, it's sort of scrambling my brain a little bit. But I think the essence of the whole thing is that you get a pretty decent standard set of tools. Whatever you have that, you know, you allocate a certain amount of area of stowage on your boat. Like, okay, I got that one locker. That's my tool locker. That's what I'm going to put in. Because, you know, I've, I have tons of those sort of, uh, I don't know, I, I guess they, they look like uh, what you would have like fishing lures and stuff like that in little separated little boxes so that you can put different types of screws and bolts and washers and all that sort of stuff. That's where I sort of get tripped up a little bit because 
I know, I know on my boat, I have stuff that I'm never going to use. I did get rid of all these crazy, like bronze fittings and stuff that I knew I would never need. Um, but I keep around quite a bit of sort of oddball stuff because in that same sense of things, you, you never know when you might possibly need that gigantic, like 16 inch bolt, uh, <laughs> or something like that. And, you know, some of these things do oddly enough come in handy, but you know, having six different size pipe wrenches or things like that, it, it can get a little bit out of hand pretty quickly. So I think really when it comes to Sparrow and heading out for months at a time, I typically, I'm, I'm really looking to, you know, have a pretty wide array of tools and power tools and then being able to know that yeah, I mean, if I don't have the exact right one, I'm still going to be able to come up with some way to fix that one thing or unscrew that one thing. Because, I mean, let's face it, sailboats are typically uh, not super complicated. And if you got wrenches and screwdrivers and chisels and hammers, you're, you're going to be able to do just about anything on that boat that you need to do. Uh, so, I don't know. It's It's one of those things where I don't think it's great to get overwhelmed with the thinking that I need every single last little thing so that if every last little thing goes wrong, I'm able to fix it properly and perfectly. I mean, we're sailors. We go out there, we make do with what we've got. And, you know, if all goes terrible, what is it? I think it's somebody sent me a quote or maybe it was in a comment or something, but it was something I think John Kretschmer had said where if something breaks on the boat and you can't fix it, he likes to think of like why he actually needed it in the first place. So it's essentially like if, if you're using some little thing on the boat and it keeps breaking, you sort of step back and be like, well, do I actually need that thing on this boat? And chances are you might find that, oh, actually you don't really need that. And if it keeps breaking, it's actually not working anyway. So you might need just something else. Um, but I think it also bleeds in from tools to like spare parts and things. You know, that's that's a big one of like, well, I got to have a spare alternator. I want to have a spare uh, inverter. I need spare this. I need spare that. And again, it's one of those things you're, you're never going to be able to have all the spares you need unless you bring a spare boat with you. And so you, you sort of have to, I don't know, just just basically prioritize uh, according to the space that you have on the boat uh, but don't go overly crazy I mean think about it if if you decide you don't have enough space for a starter motor let's say a spare one on your boat and you get out there and you burn out the starter motor somehow and now you can't start the engine well you at least still have the sails and you're still able to move the boat and uh, you just have to sail to a place where you can then get one and replace it. It's not the end of the world and everything stops. It's more of just like, oh, okay, so now we don't have that. I mean, on this last trip, started out with all the solar panel. I had free energy, electricity flowing from the sky and it got all taken away from me, and I did not have an extra spare. Normally, I do, but on this trip, I definitely didn't. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where 
you just make do with what you have and, and you go from there. And I, you know, you can take that to the nth degree as well. I mean, had, had I not had enough fuel, then, you know, the electricity completely goes out. Then we're talking about the true backups because I, I do think that it's worthwhile on ocean passages and things like that, where you're going to be out at sea for weeks at a time to be able to still navigate the boat uh, safely via no electricity, none at all. So we're talking charts, we're talking compasses, we're talking sextant. Um, and I think it's, you know, that's, that's probably better than piling on 50 replacements of this, that, and that, the other thing to ensure that your electricity stays on. I think it's better to, you know, kind of have, have decent amount of spare parts for each system, not go overboard, but always, always be prepared for that system to completely fail. Cause let's face it, we're headed out into an environment that wants to eat everything that's out there. So the ocean is slowly degrading the boat. It's absolutely attacking all electronics and you know, that's the world that we're going out into. And that's why we only go out there for certain periods of time and then come back in and spend our life savings trying to fix the boat back up and, uh, in the hopes that we can head back out again for some crazy sadistic reason that none of us seem to be able to figure out. But I don't know. I, hopefully, Josh, that sort of gives you a little bit of insight. I know it's uh, there's no real great answer for it, uh, and I wish I could put together a list. Maybe, maybe at some point uh, when I get back to the boat, I can lay out all the tools which desperately need a good WD-40 uh, washing, I guess that's not the best word, but, uh, you know, they need a little bit of uh, TLC, let's say that. And, uh, maybe I'll do just a quick video of like, yeah, these are the tools that I've always had on the boat. And that's, and it's not a huge amount by any means. It's not overkill. I don't have multiple drills and multiple this. I think with the, the power tools, it's really mostly about having multiple batteries because I've always found that sometimes those lithium-ion batteries, they just fail on you out of nowhere. And then you're sort of like, oh, oh, I only got one battery. So that's that's one top tip, I'd say. Get a lot of batteries for your power tools. That's a good idea. Uh, but yeah, other than that, I mean, it's really the basics go a long way, and you'd be amazed at what you can uh, manage and make happen. Now, he did say Josh had had thrown books in there as well. And books are kind of one of those things where I, I cherish them. I, you know, I have uh, an old Kindle that someone gave me that's fantastic. It's got hundreds and hundreds of books on it. And they're great because obviously the batteries last for a long time and all that sort of stuff. But I don't know. For my money, I love the feel of a good old used book in my hand. And so I bring quite a few on every voyage. That being said, I, I'm not going to, you know take up room over by the in the food station or anything like that you know the cupboards uh everything gets allotted it's the little amount and that's up to the sailor that's up to each person and each boat what you're gonna allot and you know how long you're gonna be out there and all that sort of stuff but yeah I mean it's it's pretty common for me after a trip to get back and I'm sort of like pulling things out of the 
a closet or, you know, even uh, I find books that are like crammed in to some of the cupboards that are in the head or under the bunk, you know, just random ones. And I almost, I almost plant those away as sort of little treasures that uh, hopefully become forgotten and then discovered after months and months at sea, because there is nothing better than that when you, you know, you find something that you forgot about and you're like, Oh my gosh, Holy cow. I, I still remember there was one time where I don't know which trip it was on, but there was, I, I usually in as far as the alcohol goes, I typically buy pretty crummy low shelf stuff, but I'll always throw a few smaller bottles of like good stuff on there, you know, uh, kettle one, or maybe a little, uh, some type of scotch and all that sort of stuff. And sometimes people gift it to me before I leave, uh, which is always pretty cool. Um, but I can remember being out of alcohol and, uh, again, it's just for a sundowner, but weeks and stuff went by. And then I do remember surfing through something and I found, I think I want to say it was a bottle of Mount Gay rum. I can't be sure. It's either that or it was Jack Daniels. I don't know, but either way, it was one of the most welcome surprises that I've ever had on the boat. And that was, uh, that was pretty fantastic. Like literally shouting to the sky, like, woo, I can't believe it. <laughs> so, so that was pretty cool. But yeah, I, you know, you got to prioritize, you got to take a look and see what you want the most of a lot, the amount of space you have. Uh, but definitely, definitely don't get overwhelmed with the fact that you're not going to be able to take everything, but you are going to be able to figure out how to do the things you need to do on the boat with what you have. So there's a happy medium between super basic and way too much. And you just got to find that little area and, and not get too caught up. I mean, if, if the engine is your big concern, focus on that. Make sure you have all the tools you need to be able to do whatever you have to on that. If it's more, you know, rigging and all that, well, then then punch into that and, and make that the priority. So hopefully, Josh, that helps. I don't know if it will or not, but uh, that's my two cents on that. Now, the other the other big question I have and thank you, Josh, for for sending that in. I really do appreciate that. Uh, let's see. Got to find the email. Where are we? Oh, man. Chris. Ah, yes. Okay. So it's Chris. I believe, isn't it? Man, I tell you, I, I do. There's part of me that thinks that uh, my brain might have gotten a little scrambled when I had that when I had that head hit out, out on this last trip because math is seemingly gotten kind of hard uh harder than it used to be and the brain seems a little more scrambled lately maybe it's just me getting old i don't know could be but it's for some reason i'm kind of like holy smokes all right yeah it's chris christopher all right so the question here is chris is he has a, a boat i think it's a 30 foot saber, I want to say, and he wants to get more experience. And I've heard this question from quite a few people. I want more experience. How do I get more experience? I want 
blue water experience uh, or I just want more time on the ocean. But I don't have enough experience to go out there by myself. And I don't want to captain my own boat with other people on it, which is smart. Very, very smart. And because, uh, you know, the minute the minute you delve into being responsible and being in that position as a captain and other people's lives are essentially in your hands, uh, you do have to take that very, very seriously. And to sort of, I don't know, have a little too much bravado and be like, oh, I can handle it. It'll be totally fine is not a wise way to go. You know, you really do have to consider that fact. And so it is, it's sort of a concern of like, well, how, how do you get experience? And, you know, there are many different options. And again, I'm only going to be able to speak really on my own experiences, trying to break into the whole ocean sailing world scene. Uh, I was doing it for essentially a career. Um, you know, I, I, basically wanted to get into yacht deliveries that was that was the dream job as soon as I discovered or realized that it was something that could actually be done and you know I went from essentially not doing any ocean sailing to crewing on people's boats and uh, you know there's some some pitfalls some pros and cons when it comes to that because you know back then and this would have been early 2000s, you know, I would cruise through the internet, I would get jobs through word of mouth, and, but essentially, you know, I'm flying to a place to hop on a boat with a bunch of people that I don't know, don't know the boat either, and then we just set off to, to sea and uh, go from point A to point B. And I was very lucky that every, you know, every one of them so far has been, fairly uneventful um, there's been a few dangerous ones in the in the past for sure but you know you, I've never ended up in a life raft uh, which is great and uh, I've never ended up in crazy fist fights or arguments or anything like that with the the people that I've I've been able to sail with so I guess I'm I'm kind of lucky there but I've, I've definitely heard the stories uh, I've had friends that have been dropped off on islands and all that sort of stuff populated islands not deserted ones. It wasn't crazy like that, but, uh, you know, I, I guess let's attack the first one, the internet. The internet's a crazy place. You never know what you're going to get. Typically there is sort of a thinking that I used to have back in the day. And I, I still don't know. I haven't taken a delivery job in a long time, many years now, but there was a saying of like, if, if, a captain or a boat owner needs to resort to going to the internet to find crew that in itself can possibly not always, but can possibly be sort of a red flag uh, of like, well, how come this person can't find crew uh, or doesn't know people that want to go out there with them or her uh, for that matter. And it's, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a, a huge red flag by any means, but it's something to, to sort of consider the other thing is the anonymity that the internet sort of provides because sometimes, you know, you are, you're signing on, let's say you're sitting in Michigan and you are signing on for a trip from Newport down to the British Virgin Islands. Uh, you're going to basically agree to this thing. You're going to fly out there. You're going to see the boat, meet the people, and then you're going to go. Um, it doesn't a hundred percent mean you have to go. You know, if you get there and you have some pretty sneaking suspicions or things just don't seem 
up to snuff. It's not like, you know, you are absolutely committed. Nobody's going to force you onto that boat. So as, as crummy as that would be to get out there and then be like, wow, this boat is really looking rough and I don't trust it. And you know, it's going to possibly be a rough passage. Yeah. Those are things that you may have to pull the trigger and, and bite the bullet and be like, you know what? I'll, I'll pay for that flight. Uh, <laughs> out and back. Sorry, I am not going with you. Uh, so, you know, the internet can can make it um, it can make it a little easier to be a bit deceiving and almost get you into like what you possibly could consider being like a trap uh, in some way, shape, or form. But I think in a lot of ways, the way I would tackle that is not. You know, you might f- discover a yacht delivery on the internet and let's say it's an unpaid position but they pay for travel before i'm ever going to accept the offer or actually sign on as a crew member i'm going to you know leave the internet behind and get the person on the phone maybe even do a zoom chat these days just to really get some facetime get to know the person and talk to them for like half an hour or something like that so at least you can get a little bit more information on not only the boat but the the captain as well because hey you you know a little bit of extra time spent sort of vetting everything in the situation is definitely going to be uh, a smart smart thing to do and if you just lo and behold leave it up to you know some keystrokes and uh an email address then you might be in for some pretty big surprises. Now, having said that, I've I've done quite a few just off the internet, but I pretty much, if I recall with my old scratchy brain, uh, we or I always made sure to talk on the phone with any any captain or owner that I was signing on with and then got a little bit of history, not only on who was the captain, but also on the boat. And the big question for me typically was, have you and has the boat done this voyage before? And how many times have they done it? You know, that was always sort of a good indicator because it's kind of, I don't know, I I just feel like people aren't going to really lie about that. You know, if you just say, well, does the boat have a lot of blue water experience? Uh, Because we're sailing to Bermuda. You know, they could consider blue water experience that that leaves it open for a little bit of exaggeration. But if you say, yeah, has the boat sailed from here to Bermuda before? That's kind of a yes or no question uh, or yes or no answer. So that's something that can sort of be uh, kept in mind. Now, sort of switching gears over to what I find to be more uh, uh, not guaranteed, but just uh, less red flaggy, if that's even a thing, uh, sort of, sort of trips trying to configure them. It's, it's going to be through like word of mouth where somebody, you know, in the Marina heard that his buddies taking their boat, you know, from point A to point B and they're looking for crew. And so it's all through word of mouth. And then you, you actually have a little bit of vetting right there. Cause you'd be like, well, what's this guy's job? What's his deal? And, and so you get sort of the inside information there. So I've always felt like that's just an extra level, but it's, you're still going to do the same thing of talking to the person, finding out about the boat, finding out about the captain's experience, what their game plan is. I mean, 
you know, one of the, one of the other questions I always like to ask is what kind of watch system do you plan on running? And because I've been on boats where the owner says, Oh, we're not going to do watches. And we're on like a six day trip. And I'm thinking to myself, we're not going to do watches. What does that mean? Does that mean literally I'm going to be sailing the boat all night long because you say you can't sleep during the day? Cause that's, that's, I've been in that situation before and that's exhausting doing like an eight hour watch all through the night. And then I'm trying to get a little snooze time during the day and they're out fishing and doing all this sort of stuff because they've gotten eight hours of sleep. Uh, it was a bad situation. I don't want to get into like specifics and things like that, but, uh, that was kind of a nightmare. So knowing, you know, some of the basic stuff and, and, and obviously I think on that same note, when you do get to a boat, it's always pretty good um indication of i guess not the qualifications of the captain because i don't put a lot of trust in that i'm not gonna lie if somebody's like well i got a hundred ton that doesn't mean anything to me um and it shouldn't mean anything to anybody except for if they know how to pass an exam with a lot of questions on it um if you say well hey uh what sort of experience do you have? How many miles have you done? Tell me about some of your previous passages. That, I think, uh, has more merit than just a little piece of paper. So that's just a little caveat there. And I mean no offense to anybody that's very proud of their, their captain's licenses. I know I am of, of my yacht master offshore. It's awesome. Um, you know, I, I, it was a lot of work to get it. And I know it's a lot of work to get any captain's license. But all I'm saying is... You just, you know, you can't count on that as being something that is proof positive that it's a captain's license does not equate directly to seamanship by any means, any way, shape or form. Anybody that says it does, they're crazy. So that's I'm putting a stamp on that one. I'm getting heated. I might have to unzip my hoodie, my sailing into oblivion hoodie. It's so hot and soft and lovely. Um, OK, not off into the weeds. I'm trying to stay on track here. It's unscripted. So you get that level of sort of security when you have the word of mouth or the reference sort of thing uh, to get onto a boat. Now, if we're talking about trying to gain experience, one of the things, you know, the, the idea of like, oh, dude, I want to go on a transatlantic, you know, three-weeker from florida all the way over to gibraltar and all that sort of stuff that's all well and good but if you haven't even done a two two or three night like overnight passage you gotta start there don't jump too far into the deep end because you might find that you suffer from massive seasickness and vertigo the minute you get into a big enough swell you might find that you hate it you might find that uh you know it's just the most awful experience in the world and you better, it's going to be a whole lot better if you find that out on a three-day passage rather than a three-week passage. So my advice on that would just be to start out small and work your way up. Kind of the cool thing about the sailing community being so tight-knit and small is that if you hop onto a boat and you do like a three-day passage and it goes really well and you get along with the people and you learn stuff on the boat, um, and everybody sort of gets along, then you get to the place and guess what? You might get referred for another trip, a bigger trip, bigger boat, who knows, whatever you're sort of looking for. And, but conversely, 
And the same thing is if, you know, you get on a boat and turn into Mr. Krabby, Krabby Crab, or you're a lay down Larry, or you're, you know, you're just not uh, pulling your own weight, as they would say, that gets around as well. And, um, you know, so you, you do have to, there's, there's a pretty concerted effort. And I know I always made it when I was, I actually am far more lazy when I'm a solo sailor than when I'm on a boat with other people. When I'm on boat with other people, I know that, you know, a little bit of reputation's at stake. And if you're if you're not sort of living up to the living up to the expectations, it gets around. Uh, you know, as a solo sailor, all I have to do is deal with my own brain. And I can be as lazy um, or as dirty or whatever. But you know, on uh, when you're with other people, you do have to consider that and everything. So so that's sort of, uh, you know, something that, that has to be thought of. But, yeah, essentially, you get the word of mouth, and, uh, and those, those are pretty good. And, you know, the best one would be one where you don't have to travel to it. Let's say it's in your local marina. You get to know the person. You can actually get out and get, like, a day sail on the boat. It's rare because most people don't want to take their boats out and then bring them back in and all that stuff just for a day sail just to appease a cruise member a potential crew member, but at the same time, if you can do that, do a shakedown cruise or something like that, oh man, that's great because then you get to actually see not only the boat in action, but the captain or the owner in action and see how they deal with that. Because most people, if if they're what I would consider to be like a stressed out sailor, like just a little bit overwhelmed and not uh, not super crazy confident, it shows. It shows in from the minute you start untying from the dock to actually setting sail to popping in a reef to any of that sort of stuff. And, you know, the the ocean is, is really good at exposing that sort of stuff. And so, you know, that would probably be one of the best things that you could do if you're trying to make sure you are getting on a boat that's a good boat with a decent captain and it's going to keep you safe while you try and gain this experience. Cause I mean, really that's what it comes down to is that you're in a position where you don't have the knowledge you're seeking the knowledge. You're trying to get that and develop these skills and you're actually having to sort of uh, put your life in somebody else's hands. So it is, you know, it's, it's one of those things you, you do have to, you, you can't take it too lightly. Now on the flip side of that as well, Sailing is always, venturing out to sea is always going to be a little bit of a roll of the dice. It's a little bit of an adventure. There is a risk. There is a danger element, which is part of what makes it so cool, uh, I think. You know, a little like, whoo-ho, we're going out there. You know, anytime you turn yourself over to Mother Nature like that, especially out at sea because your whole world is ruled by the wind and waves, there's uh, a potential for things to go really bad, really bad. And that is part of the risk, but it's also part of the reward because when you do go out there and you do come back, which 99.9% of boats do, then, hey, you know what? You feel pretty darn good and your confidence is sort of boosted up. But you do have to realize that, yeah, uh, we're going to take a little bit of a, a risk doing this. And if, if it's one of those things where 
that risk makes you so uncomfortable that you want to wrap your whole self in 15 life jackets, bubble wrap, 15 EPIRBs, and all that sort of stuff, and just wear a life raft as a backpack, you know, sailing offshore might not be for you. And I don't mean that. I'm not trying to, like, make fun of anybody or anything like that, but I'm just trying to be real that uh, there's a, a point at which you have to realize that you're going out into this environment that we're not supposed to be able to be there. That's why we have to have boats uh, to protect us from, you know, the ocean because we wouldn't survive more than, you know, a few hours swimming around out there. And, uh, you know, we're putting a lot of our faith in, in that equipment to be able to be out there. So uh, that's definitely one of the things to think of. Now, switching gears a little bit as we're creeping up in the time here. There is something to be said, I think, just a quick note on the whole money thing, um, because there is the other option, and that is to get on as a, you, you can basically pay for these passages. Um, you know, guys like John Kretschmer, uh, Skip Novak, they are out there and they do Big trips in dangerous waters. Uh, I don't think all the time, but, you know, Skip Novak's thing is down near Cape Horn. John does, I'm not sure what he does currently, but I know in the past he used to do transatlantics in the wintertime and all that stuff, which still boggles my mind. I went across from Antigua to uh, Turkey in February one year, many, many years ago. And holy smoke, we saw some of the biggest swell I've ever seen in my life out there. We were in a hundred foot boat, so it wasn't, uh, you know, too crazy, but it, it was like, holy cow. I, and he loves it. He loves that. stuff. at least it, yeah, that's what I take from when I read his books and, and listen to some of his webinars and stuff. It's absolutely crazy, but you can, it, it costs a lot of money. Um, you know, this is one where you're, you're paying to earn that experience. And obviously, I mean, I've, I've said it before. I think John is the, the greatest American uh, sailing captain alive today. Um, I just, you know, the fact it, his experience level is, is so insanely um, varied and just huge, uh, not only of, of dealing with different weather, but also of just different boats and all that sort of stuff. I mean, he's, he's hats off to him. One day I'm going to have to have him on the podcast. I'm gonna, Next time I go to Florida, I'm going to see if he's in Fort Lauderdale and just drive on down because that would be a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you're, you're going to learn a whole lot of stuff off that for sure. Uh, I don't know. I don't know too much about any of the programs, so I don't want to speak too, too highly or, or negatively or anything like that on any of them. But the option is there. If you've got the money to do it, that's a great way to get out there and do it. Uh, but if you don't, signing up and trying to just get on a delivery where they pay for just your transportation and that's it and it's not a paid position is a great way to go ahead and uh, get some of that experience talk to me 20 years ago when i was first getting into it i used to get so mad at people that did took crew positions for free because it was sort of hurting the industry of all of the other ones of us that were like, I've got a little bit of experience and I can't take a non-paying job because this is what I do. I'm trying to make a living as a delivery crew to build up to a skipper and all that sort of stuff. And uh, 
I don't know. It was funny because the transition from 2000 onward, you just saw more and more people willing to go for free. And it, it sort of diluted the uh, the crew pool, so to speak, out there and made it more and more difficult to actually find paying gigs and all that sort of stuff. And and I can remember a time where you used to be able to go down to Antigua's race week uh, down at the end of April, and you're almost guaranteed to find a position that paid $100 a day, go across the Atlantic on usually a pretty sweet boat. And, man, I... Uh, I miss those days. Those days were pretty cool. <laughs> and it wasn't all the time. It depended on the boat and all that sort of stuff. But you'd be amazed what you can find out there. Um, that's for sure. It's, it is, um, it's, it's this really amazing system of, I guess, apprenticeship, so to speak, where the, the wise old captain you know, takes on the noobs, and the noobs go out, and he puts them through their paces, and they learn the stuff, and then they get, as you gain that experience, then all of a sudden now you've got the confidence and you start going out on your own and then enough years pass and you're the salty old sailor and you take the new noobs and you teach them stuff, put them through their paces and the cycle continues as it has for hundreds of years. So it is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I, I think really to, to sort of wrap it up and, and just recap some of the points. And, you know, again, like I said, I'm not an expert on this. I just have some experience. Um, it really is, you know, try to try to vet the, the captain or owner, try and vet the boat before you get out there, get them on the phone. Don't just stroke the keys on the old computer. Um, you know, try and get some, some voice or FaceTime in before you set sail, start out small, work your way bigger, Remember, you got to build your reputation a bit. Um, always try and go above and beyond when you're out there because remember, you're dealing with people stuck on a tiny boat and they have to be around each other. So a little bit of etiquette, a little bit of uh, extra oomph, you know, not leaving dishes in the sink and things like that. You know, that goes a long way. Absolutely goes a long way. Um, but yeah, I hopefully that sort of wraps things up uh as far as a little bit of information for you chris uh i don't know it's one of those things where <clears throat> in the end you just got to jump out there and sign on and and go for it and you know the odds are very much in your favor that you're going to go out you're going to have some experiences good and bad and you're going to come back a more experienced person but you're going to come back and then you can do another one and another one. And you gain your experience that way. It really is uh, the, the chances of going out there and being hit by a Force 10 gale and losing the mast and all that sort of stuff, they're pretty rare. I mean, you know, I almost kind of feel bad with this last voyage and putting all that content together because this was one of the first voyages where I actually tried to tell the whole story via a video camera. <laughs> How old am I, a video camera? Um a GoPro. And, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I I've gotten some strange reactions from people that I think, think that that was one of my first trips or something. Um, but I wouldn't want to have it sort of scare people off from, from being like, Oh geez, well look what happened to him out there. He got turned over and broke his boat and this, that, and the other thing. And it really isn't, uh, it's rare. I mean, in, in that, case alone i mean we're talking one wave that took us all the way over out of 
nearly 70,000 miles sailed on that boat. So those are still pretty darn good odds. We're getting up into lottery number, lottery territory there, I think. <laughs> so, uh, but before I go, I do want to maybe throw in a mm, cautionary tale. So a full-on experience uh, of, of a delivery that did not go well, and then maybe a mid-grade one, and then uh, maybe one of the greatest deliveries I've ever done. So we will be right back after this short break. All right, and we are back from our break. So story time. Let's just, uh, I guess let's, let's start with the medium delivery. And I think the lessons learned in this one for me, we're really that you never know what's going to happen as far as the other people that you're sort of signing on to go out with. And as much as you'd like to be able to vet people 100% and, and really know they're going to be rock solid, you're never really going to know until you get out there and by then it's too late. Uh, but we were taking a boat from the Caribbean, and I'm going to try and keep this as vague as possible when it comes to the details just because I don't want to, uh, I would hate for anybody to feel like I'm talking about them <laughs> or anything. Uh, but essentially, we were going from the Caribbean, and then we were going to make our way back to the East Coast uh, with one stop along the way. It was going to be all blue water sailing, and uh, we had a pretty fully crewed up boat. There was the owner, captain, and then four of us mighty crew members to uh, take it, and it was probably in the high 40-foot range, old, older sailboat, but uh, very well-built. And so the trust in the boat was there. And for me at the time, and still I guess today, I always kind of had a bit of a cocksure attitude, uh, probably more hubris than anything at this point when I think about it, uh, that, you know, no matter what happens with all the other people, I'm still going to be able to sail this boat wherever I need to sail it uh, sort of attitude. And I think in some ways that can be a good thing, but... Uh, you can also find yourself getting into some, some trouble, but in any event with this trip, uh, you know, we took off and within a day, um, the, uh, person in charge, the captain, the owner, uh, found himself with pretty severe vertigo and seasickness and basically was out of the game. So at that point, uh, the rest of us were, were essentially left in charge 24 seven to, you know, keep the boat sailing to its next destination, the first little stopover, uh, which was like five days, seven days out. And uh, quickly we sort of found out that, you know, there were, there was not a huge amount of experience amongst some of the other crew. And so it just became a, a voyage where when you were, or when I was on watch, you know, we were, we were sort of in control, we were doing our thing. When we were, when I was off watch, then I was basically on call for whenever anything had to happen. And it just made it so that the voyage was one where it was almost very similar to being solo sailor where, you know, if something needs doing, if reefs need to be put in, if, uh, if, courses need to be changed if weather is changing then that that means i'm i'm coming up on deck uh whether i'm on watch or not and sort of helping to deal with or dealing with the situation on my own and none of the people on this trip were 
mean or snidey or anything like that about any of this sort of stuff. So it was one of those things where I had two options. I could either be all mad and angry about it, or I could step up to the plate, take the high road and help out as much as I could make sure it's run safely and, um, you know, help as much as can, you know? And, and I think that's, uh, I don't know where that thinking came from. I wish I did. Then I would tap into it all the time. But, you know, that was just sort of how it went. And it paid off in the end because, uh, you know, the, the owner, when the boat finally did make it back, uh, because the owner ended up flying uh, from, from the stopover back home and then we brought the boat all the way back, it was uh, a big thank you in the end, which is which is fantastic. You know, you, that's that's what you want is sort of that situation where the people that hired you on are very excited, very happy with it. And that's where, you know, the whole reputation thing goes out. But it was one of those things where you sort of sign on for this trip and you're thinking, oh, OK, cool, man, we'll do three on six off. It's going to be nice trip. It's a nice boat. Uh, and then you find that actually you're, you're going to be pretty much doing a lot of stuff the whole time. Uh, and there's not going to be a whole lot of rest for the weary, so to speak. And yeah, like I said, it's, it was only uh, a week to the first stop and then five days or so to the next. And so it wasn't like this huge, long two month trip or anything in that situation, because I know that would probably start grinding on my gears a little bit. If, uh, you know, I had to come on deck every single time we had to do something that that said person should probably be able to do. But, you know, over a week or two, not a big deal. I can handle it. Get off there. And then, you know, they might know that I've got a good attitude or I'm, you know, ready to do whatever it takes. But it also, you know, gives me a little information on on the people and on the whole program and everything. And then you know, like uh, the next time you get called up, you might be like, ah, I got another boat I got to go to. Uh, but you're still going to get those recommendations and stuff. So that's definitely a, uh, a good thing. Um, now on to the bad. So my brother Adam and I, we were amongst many stints down in Fort Lauderdale, living in crew houses, trying to find work on boats. Basically trying to sort things out, I guess, you know, in our younger days, in our 20s. And we've been down there, not a whole lot of day work, all that sort of stuff, you know, cleaning some engine rooms, doing some washdowns. Not not the greatest stuff for somebody who wants to get out there and actually sail. And uh, but, you know, you got to you got to cut your teeth somewhere and essentially signed on to do an unpaid passage because it was going to the British Virgin Islands, uh, which where we had worked previously and we had a lot of friends and I had a job interview if I could get down there. And so, you know, it was one of those things where transportation was paid to get back. So it wasn't going to cost us anything, all the food, everything was included, but it wasn't going to be a paying gig. And there were going to be three of us, my brother and I, and, and then the captain. And it was on, uh, basically a production boat, a newer boat and not what I would consider to be a blue water boat. It was a catamaran in the 30 foot range and just not, not something that really needed to be off of, you know, let's say a big lake, <laughs> not really an ocean, ocean passage machine. Uh, but the plan was to go 
and sail from Florida through the Bahamas, through the Turks and Caicos, and then just make the hop down to the Caribbean. And uh, it just, I don't know, when I think about it, we had met with the captain, we'd had lunch with him, and then we actually moved on board the boat for a few days before preparations or to help with preparations and then uh, and then we took off. So we had more than enough time to vet this whole system and we both sort of knew and noticed lots of red flags, just lots of them. You know, there was no tools. There weren't any charts. Um, the game plan was not what I typically would think of as the safest, fastest route to get down there. You know, one, we're in a catamaran and the plan was to go through the Bahamas. And I, you know, there's two ways of thinking on that. One, you've got the shelter of the islands, but the other way is that you're going to be beating into the wind the whole time. We're on a catamaran. Uh, it's not good. It's just not, it's not, it's not acceptable <laughs> to be doing that if you don't have to. And, you know, I had done, I don't know, tons of deliveries at this point from the East Coast down to the Caribbean where you go out to I-65, a.k.a. the uh, Longitude 65, and then you turn, you turn right and go to the Caribbean. So you're pretty much reaching almost the whole way down, but you do have to go pretty far out. You're, you're, you're way out there. You're in Bermuda territory, so to speak. And then you, uh, and then you make your turn and that does make some people nervous. I understand that. Um, not so much me, but like this, this, we considered doing it when we talked about the passage plan and passage making. Uh, but I, because I was not the captain at the time, it was not up to me. And, uh, we decided not to do that and to go through the Bahamas. And I honestly, at first I, I was discouraged because I thought, ah, oh, man, we're just going to beat into this the whole way. But then also I realized, you know, we're probably going to be stopping in a few places in the, in the Bahamas and I hadn't ever been there before. So kind of sounded like it would be kind of cool. And, uh, in any event, uh, as the trip went on, a couple things became very apparent. One was that uh, the sailing experience was not there out of uh, our captain. He, he definitely did not really have the nuances. He was, he was more of a powerboat person. Um, Sausalito, California. I wonder who that is. Oh, man, I forgot I was even doing this podcast. My phone starts beeping. Sorry about that. I'll have to see if I can edit that one out. Uh, but essentially, yeah, I mean, he was a powerboat guy, so he didn't really know too much. So we sort of had to help him through that. Um, and, you know, when one when you're doing solo watches, it, if you know the person who's up there doesn't really have a huge handle on what's going on, then it's always a little bit you're on edge when you go down below, at least when the weather's not great. Um, and the other thing was that the boat was falling to pieces. The auto helm broke, the water tanks broke free. The hatches started to leak. Anytime we got into any sort of ugly weather, the whole thing's flexing and making sounds. And it's pretty awful. We only had one chart. We had just a, just like literally we're talking a screwdriver, an adjustable wrench and a hammer. I think that was about all we had for tools. So there wasn't really a whole lot of anything we do. And these were all huge red flags and we went anyway and we continued even after we had made a few stops along the way. And, uh, 
you know, it was one of those things. It was young. It was dumb. I was desperate. I wanted to get down there. Florida wasn't all that great at that time. And, um, yeah, it was just one of those things. But then we take off to go do the final stretch. Um, and, you know, this was a trip where there was no alcohol or anything like that. Um, so we didn't really have to worry about that situation. Uh, although whenever we were in port, that got pretty ugly. Um, I'm not really going to address too much of that because it was on land, but uh, there were just, you know, a lot of these red flags, but in any event, yeah, we, we stayed on and we took off. And when we got down to go across the Mona passage, which, uh, if, if my mind recalls is between Dominican Republic and, uh, um, uh, Puerto Rico or it's Puerto Rico. Eh, shoot. I can't even remember, but in any event, we're in that area and it is, getting ugly not gale force but pretty darn close we're in this catamaran the waves are getting big it's getting sketchy rainy all that sort of stuff bad visibility i mean we don't have a whole lot of systems on this boat there's no ais um we're essentially the navigation i'm i'm keeping track of the navigation with the paper chart uh we don't have a sextant the captain had his computer with a program on it and I had my backup little handheld GPS. So at least I knew like, okay, I'm solid. I've got, a, at least I have a chart and I have this little GPS, this little Garmin thing. So we've got that. Um, but yeah, it got pretty bad. We ended up like, you know, really banging that boat up in that weather. And then we finally pulled into uh, the Caribbean, into the Virgin Islands and Holy smokes, uh, I don't think I've ever, ever been more happy to, to be finished. And we, we pulled into the U.S. Virgin Islands first and then had to actually deliver the boat into a charter fleet into the BVI. And, oh my gosh, I will never forget this. So the BVI has like five different places that you can check in through customs. And the one place you don't want to do that is in Roadtown, in the capital city there. It's just, you know, it's it's almost guaranteed that they're going to look at your boat, they're going to search your boat. It's not not a guarantee, but depending on how you handle yourself in there. Uh, and as much as you might be excited to see people, other people after being out at sea for a while, or, you know, you might have be the nicest, most funny, positive person, when you go into customs in another country, you just bite your tongue. You say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. And you just get on with it. You sign the stuff. You don't joke. And this guy went in, and I guarantee he was joking around. And this boat had a whole bunch of also like pamphlets and things like that, boxes full of stuff that was supposed to be delivered to this charter company. And all I see is them marching out with the captain, coming out to go and look through the boat, and they get on there, and their first question is, what's in these boxes? And I say, I have no idea. And boom, and he said he had no idea. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was a catastrophe. Cut to two and a half hours later, they yank all these boxes off. Those go get held for a while, and uh, I'm sure the charter company had to pay some, some fines and penalties and uh essentially yeah um oh it was such a nightmare but that was one of the times where i I've, i saw my younger brother uh reach his breaking point when in the end um 
the boat was being going like taken care of and cleaned and and we were supposed to just sort of hang loose in case they needed our help with anything and finally he just looks at me he's like you know what i'm gone i am gone and i <laughs> the best part we were having just before that we were having lunch or something like that all three of us and uh uh, the captain had, had said, hey, you know, do you want that chart? Because I made him buy the chart. And <laughs> I was like, oh, man, that'd be awesome. You know, a little keepsake. And he's like, yeah, you just give me 40 bucks and it's all yours. And I look at him. I'm just thinking to myself, dude, you'd have been long gone out there in that storm if we hadn't been on this boat with you. Oh, and I'm not trying to say that I'm some great person or whatever, but it was just one of those situations where I was, there was just no thanks. There was no thanks at all. And, uh, I don't know. That was, that was, that was a big, big nightmare trip. And I'm, I'm really glad I went on it because it taught me so many lessons that are so deeply fried into the back of my memory. Uh, so, you know, but it was super dangerous soup, most by far most dangerous, uh, trip I've ever been on most probability that we would have actually uh, lost that boat. Uh, if the, the hulls were literally cracking free, uh, around their bulkheads and stuff. And, uh, yeah, it was really bad. So word to the wise on that one. And I would love to call out the manufacturer of that boat, but I won't because, uh, I don't think that's fair to them. Uh, I think it was more just that boat just didn't need to be out there. You know, you don't take a go-kart to the Indy 500. Let's just say that. Um, now on to the greatest delivery I have ever done. And it just happened to be the first transatlantic. So this one was found through the internet. I had not, and this is very, very early in my sailing career. Uh, I had not done anything more than, no, I believe I talked to the captain on the phone for at least like 15 minutes after I had sort of found this site and stuff. And this one was an unpaid position they paid for the travel to the Caribbean and then back from uh, Palma on Mallorca in the Mediterranean. Uh, but it was the, the captain was actually an ocean master instructor. Huge amount of experience. He was just absolutely epic. He was this British guy. He looked like Dudley Moore, like almost twins. Great attitude, all this sort of stuff. We had a crew. Uh, there was, let's see, four of us, no, five of us crew. And then he would be in sort of a hover position. And one of the, there was a couple, myself, another guy, and then the captain. And the couple, the girl was going to, she had signed on to be the cook. And so we take off from Antigua. And it's pretty rough passage. It was in May, uh, right after the uh, classic regatta. And everybody is seasick, um, you know, except for myself and the captain. And it was one of those situations where it was just rough enough the whole freaking time out to the Azores, you know, 2,200 miles where, um, you know, everybody was pretty worn out except for the captain and I. And, um, that gave us the chance to sort of sit down and uh, every time I was on watch, he seemed to want to come up and, and tell old war stories about sailing and talk about the olden days of sailing and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, after a few days, we get to know each other even more. And 
then out comes, you know, a little bottle of whiskey or whatever. And we'd have a cocktail whenever I was on watch and, you know, that sort of relaxes you a little bit more. And, and as the trip went on and on, it just, we just became, uh, more and more friendly, uh, as far as just enjoying each other's company and, uh, and then one cocktail turned into two cocktails during most watches. And I like to say we, we left a trail of bottles behind uh, across the Atlantic on that one. And it just, it was, it was phenomenal. I learned so much. I mean, this guy, this captain was phenomenal when it came to uh, if I was doing something wrong with the boat, like if the weather picked up and I, you know, shortened the side and this was a, a like 68 foot sailboat and everything's hydraulic. So I'm learning all that, but he actually taught me a lot about sailing the boat. And, you know, I would have the main pretty well reefed down the winds up and I've got a little bit of jib and he would come up and be like, you know, you feel how the boat's sort of yawing around a bit. He's like, pack that jib away. Let's pull the staysail out. We keep those sails right in the center. I'm learning all these things. And it was just a really, really phenomenal. I, I keep saying that word. I don't know why, but it was a great experience and it was fun and it was casual. Uh, the only thing that would have made it better is if I was getting paid. But in the end, they actually offered to be a position on the boat to because uh, it was going to be a charter boat in the med. Now, that was sort of their their M.O. with that boat uh, was to basically spend the winter in the Caribbean chartering it out. And then they would go over to the med for the summer and charter it out there. And they do that ocean crossing. And a lot of times the captain actually had people that would pay to do the crossing, much like Kretschmer and stuff where he's going to teach you everything from celestial navigation to seamanship while you go across. So he was already in that position. I just really lucked out that I had, I had sort of stumbled onto this boat, but that was definitely one of the greatest sailing trips uh, with other people I've ever had in my life. It was just fantastic. I loved every minute of it and I would do it over and over and over again because it was an awesome fast boat it treated us well, and it, we had great people on board. And, and after we left the Azores and things calmed down, everybody else sort of stopped with the seasickness stuff, and uh, we, we were definitely um, all a pretty good team. We all got along really well. And uh, I know if I ran into any of those people today, uh, we'd, we'd go have a beer and, and have some good stories to tell. So you never know what you're going to get. You might get danger. You might get you're in charge, you might get the best trip of your life. Um, but I will tell you, if you don't actually make the leap and take the gamble and roll the dice, you're never going to know. So Chris, I want to thank you very, very much for sending in that question and uh, trying to pick my brain on that one. And hopefully some of this was helpful. I mean, I sort of kind of think it's a little bit of a rambling podcast, but, uh, uh, at least it had sort of a little bit of direction. I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to see. Thank you all for listening. Thank you so much for the support. And uh, until next time.